0: This station is now the ultimate power in the universe.
1: I suggest we use it. The bus station stops here. Plug the radio in.
0: Yeah, cause I can't get past the evidence. Hello, everyone. Once again, it's time for Evidence for Faith. This is the weekly program that helps Christians to become thinkers and thinkers to become Christians. I'm Kirk Hastings. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. Keith Kendricks is away this week. He's on vacation in Israel, taking a tour of that amazing country in which so much of our religious history has taken place. So I hope he's having a good time over there, and he might be listening in on his computer. So if you are, hi, Keith. Hopefully when he gets back, he'll give us a, a report on his visit. And if you would like to listen to podcasts of previous episodes of this program, they are available on our website, which is located at www.evidence4faith.com. If you'd like to ask us a, a question, you can also email us at evidence4faith at gmail.com. We are pleased to announce uh, today that we have a special guest that we've had with us before, Dr. Tim McGrew, a professor of philosophy at Western Michigan University, where he has taught in the graduate program there for the past 16 years. Uh, Dr. McGrew specializes in the history and philosophy of science, the theory of knowledge, and probability theory, as well as he has teaching interests in formal logic and the history of modern philosophy. Very smart man. He's also an expert in the Bible, which is why we enjoy having him on this program. But before we bring on Dr. McGrew, uh, I have a quote of the week here for you, which Keith likes to do. So I thought I would follow in his footsteps. The quote I found for you this week is from Blaise Pascal, who was a French mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and philosopher who lived in the 17th century. He said, It is quite certain that there is no good without the knowledge of God, that the closer one comes, the happier one is, and the further away one goes, the more unhappy one is, and that ultimate unhappiness would be to be certain of the opposite of him. That's almost uh, a uh, summary of the philosophy of our program here.
2: You know, it's interesting. It reminded me of a a bumper sticker that I once saw, and it said uh, this. It said, Uh, No peace, no Jesus. Uh And you can spin that however you want, but if you know Jesus, you will have peace. Otherwise, you're at war with uh, yourself and your own carnality and your own um, immorality and and so on. Mm -hmm. Anyway, before we uh, uh, invite Dr. McGrew to join in the uh, discussion, I I wanted to hear what your slant was on Howard Camping's prediction on the end of the world. Uh, Well, according to him, we shouldn't be here today.
0: Um, I've gotten some emails from some friends of mine, some of them skeptics, who have been kidding me about the fact that, oh, the Bible is wrong and Christians are wrong again. It was supposed to be the end of the world and it didn't happen. Yeah. And I'm, I'm my response to them has been, uh, Howard Camp said that yesterday was going to be the end of the world, but the Bible doesn't say that.
2: Exactly. And unfortunately, too many people in the uh, secular uh part of this human race believe that Christians are whack jobs, just like Howard Camping, uh, and it's unfortunate, uh, but this is his second strike, and the man should not be on uh, public radio, unfortunately. Yeah, I do
0: understand he predicted once before yeah, the 1994, end of the world, yep. and that didn't work out either.
2: Yep, and if you read Matthew, anybody who knows Matthew, where Jesus is asked asked the question, when will the end come? He, he even says to his disciples, nobody right. knows the day or the hour. But that there will be certain signs and wonders you know wars and rumors of wars and and um, uh, plagues and and uh, earthquakes and all the things that we're seeing in modern day world uh, but certainly nothing uh, comes comes close to who can predict it Jesus said he couldn't even predict it uh, only God knew the day and the hour only God the Father knows when Jesus is going to come back and our job is to be re- to be ready yeah you know and unfortunately there were too many parties on Friday and Saturday night uh, as a mockery to this whole uh, business, uh, but the day will come, yeah. unfortunately. When, yeah, I was in, when I was in church this morning, uh, I, want, I uh, got a, a text from my best friend in medical school. He <laughs> said, Heidi and I uh, are in heaven, Mike. We're looking for you. And Pat, where are you? <laughs> and I texted him back and I said, we took the northbound flight. You sure you didn't get on the southbound flight? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I wish I had emailed a couple of my friends and tried that trick. I'm in heaven. Where are you guys? What happened? <laughs>
2: but anyway, at, at this time, I'd like to uh, invite uh, uh, Dr. McGrew to uh, to join in the conversation. But before we do that, I just wanted to give a little uh, insight. Uh, Dr. McGrew was on the uh, program on uh, 424, uh, 2011, and if you didn't hear that podcast, uh, go back about uh, five shows. In it, he discussed uh, eight uh, very, very excellent uh, examples of undesigned coincidences whereby uh, two... Uh, let's say writers of the gospel would be discussing uh, a certain part of Jesus's ministry or healing or something along those lines, and little bits and pieces, little tidbits of information would be missing, let's say, in one text, but present in the other text. So you got the full picture, the full, full right. puzzle became very, very evident, very clear. Right. And he gave us uh, eight really good examples of that. And I, and I understand that today we're going to actually expand on that, and we're going to be talking about not only what the Gospels had to say, but also what did the writers outside of the uh, New Testament Mm -hmm. had to say, the historical texts that actually uh, confirm that the Bible is true. So without further ado, welcome Professor McGrew.
1: Thanks very much, Kirk. Good to be here.
2: Good to have you back. Well, uh, Dr. McGrew, you gave us um, uh, some examples of undesigned coincidences. For the, for the listeners who perhaps didn't hear one of those excellent examples, maybe you can just spin a, a quick one for us before we get into the, uh, the, the other discussion outside of the uh, gospel text.
1: Sure. Uh, like you were just saying, uh, sometimes two uh, texts, and in, in the case of the undesigned coincidences, they both happen to be scriptural texts, will fit together in a way that would be unexpected. Maybe one passage raises some question and the other provides information that answers the question, but in a way that does not make it look like either passage is copied from the other or both are copied from a common source. Uh, when that happens, the best explanation is that both passages are substantially true. They fit together because they're accurate descriptions of things that really happened. So here's an example from the feeding of the 5000 as described in the gospel of mark mark 6:39 is a very curious uh, little detail that mark throws in he says then jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass a fairly rare intrusion of the color green into the gospels hmm. and uh, that might not seem like a big deal except that as your uh, your friend Keith is going to be able to verify, since he's over there in Palestine right There's now. There's
0: no green grass. It's,
1: yeah, where's, where's the green grass? It's all brown.
0: Uh-oh, that's well, a mistake in the Bible. Yeah, you
1: know, so you might think, but if you go over to the parallel passage in John chapter 6, John doesn't mention green grass at all. What he does mention is that the setting of The event, and this is a a description of a miracle, so this is kind of an important one, was that the feast of the Passover was at hand. Now, as it happens, that's the very short window of time where there's a growing season, where the grass in Israel is actually green. Oh, wow. And so just that, that little detail that John drops in, he's obviously not copying Mark here. He doesn't mention that the grass was green. Right. Mark isn't copying John. Mark doesn't mention that the setting of this had anything to do with the season of the Passover. You huh. put the two things together, they fit.
0: Does That's that make amazing, sense? yes.
1: No. You want another one, or should we just move on? Sure, on? give us one more. Here's one other than... Um, there's a passage in the narrative that John gives uh, of the disciples with Jesus after the resurrection. So this is a, you know, again presupposes for its very intelligibility that a miracle's taken place. Jesus is talking with Simon Peter by the shores of the Sea of Galilee and he says to him something that seems almost cruel. He, they're they're sit, sitting around and the other disciples are there as well and Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Meaning, more than these guys. That seems kind of harsh, like, you know, Lord, wouldn't it be enough if I loved you as much as these guys? Would that be okay? Now, the funny thing is that there's nothing in the Gospel of John that explains this comment, but if you go back into the other three Gospels, the synoptics, for example in Matthew 26:33, you get that description of the scene in the upper room where they've just you know, had the Last Supper, and then they fall to arguing a bit and Matthew and Mark and Luke all contain something that you don't find uh, in in John. Um, it comes out very clearly the way Matthew puts it. Uh, Peter's talking about how he's going to be faithful to Jesus, and he, he goes beyond just saying, I will be faithful, I won't deny you, right? That's the setup for the cock crowing three times that we all know about. But actually, he says something more. He says, though they all fall away, I will never fall away. Hmm. So... The story in John, the bit that we get in John 21, makes sense only in light of a detail that we find over in Matthew that John doesn't give us. It's like stereoscopic vision. You know, you're seeing this suddenly in 3D, and it comes out, and Jesus is saying this to Peter, because Peter was boasting that he was going to be the most faithful of all the disciples. And since, as we know, Peter spectacularly failed in that, Jesus says, So, Peter, do you love me more than they do? And, boy, once you see that in focus, for which you need both stories... It jumps out at you, and it's got the ring of truth.
0: That's really neat. He he was Jesus was kind of repeating Peter's earlier words back to him.
1: Exactly, but he's repeating something or or making a reference to something that John hasn't recorded, so you have to go to one of the other Gospels to find out what the context was. That's, That's this kind of undesigned coincidence where neither passage looks copied from the other, but they fit together in a way that answers your questions.
2: And you know, one, one of the things that I noticed the second time I read mm-hmm. the Bible uh, was that it made so much more sense because yeah. the first time through you get the big picture, okay, and the second time through you start getting the little bits and pieces and the nuances that just make a whole lot more sense. So mm-hmm. it's like the, the jigsaw puzzle analogy that you used on the previous show. Very much. And of course
0: that happens repeatedly. It seems like almost every time I reread a book of the Bible, I find something in it that I didn't notice before. Yep. That's one of the reasons it's such a great book.
1: Amen. I, I couldn't agree more.
2: Well, you you made reference in the previous show, uh, Professor, to the uh, John James Blunt book, Undesigned Coincidences, and mm-hmm. he apparently delineates a, a whole lot more in the way of these uh, instances. Uh, and this, this book is actually out of print, but it's available on your website. Can you give us a little bit more uh, detail on that? Yeah, uh,
1: and I'll uh, maybe talk about this more later, but we've got a website where we're trying to make available some of the very best materials that have been written. For the use of people who have an interest in apologetics and this book, uh, Undesigned Coincidences by John James Blunt, B-L-U-N-T, just like it sounds, um, you can access at our website. That website is historicalapologetics.org, so no dots, no spaces for the first part, historicalapologetics.org. If you go there, there's a little Browse the Library button on the left-hand side, click that, and the names of the various authors will come up, and Blunt is right in that list click on that, and we will give you a link to a PDF where you can download the book yourself. And then you can put it on your own computer and print it out if you want, read it at your leisure.
2: And Um, I might add there's no charge for this. Oh,
1: no. Good good grief, no. That's Um, awesome.
0: I would assume also are these basically out-of-print books that you're going to be doing this for? They're
1: all copyright-free, that's right. We don't believe in infringing copyright, so we're putting up things that are copyright-free, and we're very excited to be able to do that. So we're glad to give you all uh, links to the best resources that are out there, absolutely free for everyone and absolutely out of copyright.
2: Wow, that's wonderful. Why don't we um, get into the uh, cumulative uh, argument um, and use some of the uh, evidences that are outside of the Gospels that actually confirm the veracity of what's written by the, um, the authors of the four Gospels. Well, sure. And I, and, I, and I know that Luke is probably the most um, detailed in all of the Gospel writers' Being a physician and a historian himself, he uh, really took critical detail uh, in his note-taking, and I know that he's been criticized in a number of uh, instances about some of the details that some of the historical people felt were incorrect. Mm -hmm. And I know that today you're going to correct some of those people on Luke's writing. Sure,
1: we'll get to that. But I I have a good friend, a fellow with a couple of doctorates, who told me once, you know, I'm a Christian because of Luke. Hmm. which I thought was a very beautiful statement.
0: Yeah. Well, I've, I've read a number of books about the Gospels that say over and over again that uh, many scholars believe that Luke is one of the greatest historians uh, ever, that his the detail in his writings, and they just keep finding things in archaeology and whatever that just keep supporting everything that he said.
1: Yeah, Lou, I I have a friend who's a distinguished uh, professor of history here at Western Michigan University. In the history department, he's just retired, in fact, this spring. And I sat across from him at the table over a meal, and he said to me, Luke is the most accurate historian I've ever read, hmm. which I thought was pretty high compliment coming from a man who specializes in ancient history.
2: Wow. Well, I'm a physician internist, and I am also Greek, and I have to tell you that the first book in the Bible that I did read was the book of Luke for, those, for those two reasons.
1: Yeah, beautiful. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So did you want me to get into some of the incidental uh, Yeah, Yeah, can you do that? Okay, so the principle here is really much the same as with the undesigned coincidences, only now we're comparing a passage of Scripture with some other record. It might be a document, an inscription, a superscription on a coin that is not part of Scripture. Uh, some people, when they think of looking for non-Christian evidence, are tempted to look for big confirmations, secular sources that mention the report of the resurrection of Jesus, for example. And there are a few sources that do mention things like the reported resurrection or the crucifixion under Pilate. But remember, we're looking for the kind of confirmation that can't be dismissed as the result of dependence of one source on the other. The best examples of that are incidental confirmations, cases where the scriptures touch on some detail about local authorities or the social, political, and legal situation or Jewish customs. These get pretty detailed, and for an outsider, they can be bewildering. Authors who get these things right are not simply making up myths.
0: You're generated. talking about, like, obscure details that as somebody was copying from somebody else, they probably wouldn't even think of, of copying something like that.
1: Yeah. So, uh, for example, the New Testament contains a lot of passing references to political figures. If these were works of fiction, we wouldn't expect them to get all of these right, maybe some of the main ones, sure, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the case of Palestine in the first century, the test is really very strict. Palestine was never conquered in the ordinary way. It came under Roman rule with the consent of a lot of the inhabitants, and so they were allowed for a while to maintain a sort of semi-independence. The result of this is that there's a double system of taxation. There's a double administration of justice. There's even, in some respects, a double military command. Uh, Jewish and Roman customs, Jewish and Roman words were used simultaneously, and this makes the civil history of Judea during the period very difficult to master and remember. Um, the original situation was complicated. It was changed frequently. They had procurators coming in and shifting things around. Uh, it seems to have bewildered even Tacitus, who is one of the most careful of the Roman historians. Now, the really interesting thing here is that the New Testament authors don't stumble in treating of the period. They take note casually, without elaborate explanations of the various changes in the civil government. Here's an example. Um, in Matthew 2, verse 22, Archelaus is said to be reigning as a king in Judea. Move on to Matthew 27, verse 2, Pilate is governor of Judea. In Acts 12, ostensibly set later, we find that there's a guy named Herod who's king of Judea. Hmm. You move on to Acts 23, suddenly Felix is the governor. Now, the New Testament authors never offer a word of explanation for how all this comes about. The whole thing is so confusing that Thomas Paine, who was not only the author of uh, Common Sense, but also the author of an attack on Christianity called The Age of Reason, tries to to stick the New Testament authors with a charge of incompetence. Here's a quotation from Paine. Matthew calls Herod a king, and Luke calls Herod tetrarch, that is, governor of Galilee. But there could be no such person as a king, Herod, because the Jews and their country were under the dominion of the Roman emperors who governed them by tetrarchs, or governors. In other words, they just got it wrong the times that they were mentioning kings. Mm-hmm. Well... Now, that's really interesting. So even somebody who's trying very hard to figure out what really happened and and catch the New Testament authors in a mistake thinks he's got them here. Let's go over to the Jewish historian Josephus, who was born in the middle of the first century and grew up in Jerusalem, and let's see what he has to tell us about it. So take that passage in Matthew 2.22. Joseph has been in Egypt, right? This is the story of the flight to Egypt, and then they hear that Herod the Great is dead. So Joseph and Mary and the child Jesus are heading back north, back towards Palestine from Egypt, and Matthew tells us in verse 22, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he, that is Joseph, was afraid to go there and, being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So here we have Matthew saying Archelaus was reigning as a king. Now, As we go and look in Josephus, we discover that's exactly right. Moreover, we find out why it was that Joseph was afraid to go there. One of the first official acts of Archelaus after he took his father's throne was to put down a rebellion by slaughtering 3,000 Jews in the temple at Passover. Hmm. Passover was literally canceled. Archelaus told all the pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for Passover to go home. Hmm. So not only do we discover that Matthew was right and Archelaus was reigning as a king at the time, but the fuller history also explains why Joseph decided against a return to Judea and went further north into the regions of Galilee, which would be out of Archelaus' reach. Hmm. Now, the other passage that Payne has listed, uh, we can find in Acts 12, verse 1. Uh, Luke, writing in Acts, says, About that time Herod the king, so there's that word, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So, out of this verse in Acts, we find that Herod's a king, and he had authority in Jerusalem. Now, this is really interesting, because at no time during the preceding 30 years, nor ever afterwards, was there a king at Jerusalem exercising authority in Judea, except in the last three years of the reign of Herod Agrippa I. When we look in Josephus in the Antiquities uh, books 18 and 19, we discover that this is just the one window of time in which Herod I had been invested with the authority of king. He'd been given his grandfather's uh, dominions to their fullest extent. But very shortly thereafter, as we learn in Acts, Herod Agrippa dies So it's right there at the end of his reign. That's the only window of time in which calling him a king and speaking of him as having the authority of a king in Jerusalem would have been accurate. Luke is not writing us a chronicle of the governance of Palestine, but he's intimately familiar with that history. So he nails it. he gets Herod's title exactly right for just this point in time when it would have been wrong on either side of it.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So he was actually amazingly accurate in using that term rather than mistaken. Absolutely, That's, that's fascinating. And that's the
1: sort of thing that we find again and again, that he, he gets it just right on these things, time and again. And, uh, you know, big things, little things. You could say, well, the big things, maybe he went to a library. There were libraries in the ancient world, but a lot of the things that he gets right could not simply be written off as his having checked it up in a library, a lot of them are very detailed points, and they're the kind of points where historians of the period who are not living on site or who come maybe a couple generations later habitually get wrong. Right. So the Roman historian Suetonius, he can scarcely tell one Herod from the other. Sure. Nobody says, "Oh, Suetonius is making it up; then he's writing myths." No, we just say, "Well, you know, he was living at Rome; he was not really well informed about these crazy Jews," <laughs> uh, but. No problems like that. No excuses like that are necessary for Luke.
0: And, of course, back then they didn't have things like radio and television and the nightly news you and the Internet and everything else to tell them Google what was it. going on. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and so Luke somehow, without Google, manages to get zillions of things right. He's, he's really an amazing guy, definitely my favorite uh of the, the, the historians, no aspersions against the other gospel right. writers, but Luke is the man. So yeah. his,
2: his exacting detail is what makes his gospel so strong.
1: Absolutely, and of course Acts is really the gospel of Luke, part two. Correct. And so it's an extension written to the same person, by the same person, of the story, picking up with Jesus between the resurrection and the ascension, and then carrying on for the founding of the church and how it spread throughout the Roman Empire.
0: So we have a large part of the New Testament who is written by this very exacting historian.
1: We do, actually. Luke has written about as much of the New Testament as Paul has. Yeah. If you think of all those letters of Paul, that's a lot of letters, but they're mostly relatively small. You know, A couple of them are larger, but yeah, Luke has, has word for word written as big a chunk of the New Testament as anybody.
0: So it's probably not surprising either that Luke is the place where we find the story about Jesus' birth, where the other Gospel writers didn't really focus on that.
1: Yeah, in fact, there's something rather interesting about that. Uh, If you look at the style of Luke's Greek, Luke writes a very high, pure Greek style. But after the prologue, at the very beginning of the first chapter, we get a couple of chapters of a Greek that looks and feels very different. And I I think that the scholarly conjecture on this has a lot of plausibility that Luke is working here from documents provided to him, probably by members of Jesus' own family. Hmm. He may even have been translating them from Aramaic and just rendering them over to give this account. We know that Luke took his time to try to listen to people. We even find curious things about the the balance, for example, in the book of Acts. There's a whole passage where suddenly this guy Philip features, and you hear about Philip, and you hear about the Ethiopian eunuch, and and it goes on and on at some length about Philip, and then Philip drops out of the story, and he's not heard from again. Mm. And so you're thinking, well, why is it that Luke is incorporating this much material? Well, look at the history of Luke's travels with Paul, and you discover that while Paul is imprisoned in, uh, in Judea, Luke is, is hanging around there for a couple of years. No doubt he dropped in on Philip and said, hey, can you, you know, tell me what you know. Right. I'm writing a book. <laughs> and there it is. And, and so yeah. that's why we have more detail than from the the perspective, say, of a fiction writer who wants to balance the narrative out nicely, you would expect. You're getting this because Luke had a chance to sit down with someone who was a participant and he said, you know what, I'm not going to waste this material.
2: You are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And today we have with us uh, Professor Tim McGrew, um, who has his doctorate from uh, Vanderbilt University and um, is a full professor at Western Michigan University. And we're carrying on this uh, discussion with him about uh, not only the internal evidences of the Gospels, but also extant evidences as well. And um, uh, along those lines, uh, Professor McGrew, I'd like to... uh, ask you a question about the language of the day, mm-hmm. and specifically how exact the Greek language was versus the Hebrew language and the records and the documents that we have uh, in place, and, and the meaning uh, of the exactness of these two languages.
1: Okay, um, the Greek language is the language in which every book of the New Testament, as it has come to us, is written. Uh, whether any of them were written in any language other than Greek originally is an interesting conjecture there it has been scholarly discussion of this, particularly in two cases that would be the Gospel of Matthew because we have a record that Matthew's Gospel was originally written in the Hebrew tongue, which would have been the Aramaic dialect of Hebrew at that time. and the book of Hebrews uh, there is conjecture in the patristic writings, the writings of the Church Fathers of the 2nd and early 3rd century, that it might have been originally written up in Hebrew by Paul, and then translated into a high Greek rhetorical style by Luke. And in fact, there's a lot of Lucan feel to the Greek of Hebrews. It's a very sophisticated Greek. Mm. Uh, G- Greek, Koine Greek, common Greek, was the language of the Roman Empire at large. It was the language of commerce. If somebody from Alexandria wanted to talk to somebody from Bithynia, you know, we're talking about somebody from Egypt and somebody from Turkey, they mm. would talk Greek. Greek because that was the common language. It was not Latin. Latin was the official language. But the common language was Greek. And although it is a simplified Greek in the sense that it's got uh, fewer inflections than a classical Greek of the kind that Plato and Aristotle wrote, it's still a very exact language. There are very specific terms, and you use the exact terms, right term. There, there's an old saying, the Greeks had a word for it. And, and the reason that they have that saying is that you will find that there are shades of meaning and you don't know, just have to wonder which one somebody meant because he'll pick a word that has that exact meaning. So the the Jewish people among themselves often spoke Aramaic, but as a matter almost of necessity for them to engage in commerce and travel, they would have to know Greek as well. So there's a pretty good body of evidence that most of the people who would be engaged in action, uh, particularly the males in Palestine, were fluent in Greek. So if somebody says to you, well, you know, Jesus spoke only Aramaic, and then this bit out of John 3 doesn't make sense because there's a pun that makes sense only in Greek. Jesus is in Jerusalem talking with a highly educated Hellenized Jew Nicodemus with a Greek name. Odds are he's speaking Greek. Hmm. Stanley Porter has some excellent work on this. If any of your listeners might want to follow up on that, I could recommend Stanley Porter's work on this very heartily. Excellent.
0: Very interesting. Um, kind of along this line of questioning, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot with this one, but it's something that kind of interests me. Uh, I just read recently somewhere, it didn't give any details, but I read somewhere that. Um, the incident when Jesus died on the cross when the sun disappeared for three hours or whatever it was. Uh, I just heard recently that there are actually some references to that outside of the biblical documents that they saw this phenomenon in other parts of the Roman Empire but didn't know what it was. Do you there, know it, anything about that?
1: Well, it, this one's a little bit difficult to, um, to track down. There's a, there's a reference in Phlegon of Tralles to this, and uh, and there are some other references. Uh, one one author says, "Well, someone has tried to explain the darkness at the time of the crucifixion as an eclipse, but this seems wrong to me." Now, the isn't it the wrong of,
0: time of year for that, or well, something? Well, it would be the wrong
1: time of month. Right, and and the reason is that Passover is taking place when there's the greatest amount of light in the sky, and that involves a full moon. Now, just astronomically, the moon is full when the sun's on the other side of the Earth, illuminating right. the face that we see. And so the moon can't also simultaneously be 180 degrees over on the other side getting in between us and the sun. Right. So it's not in, you know, not in place for so an, an eclipse. So an eclipse
0: is not a reasonable explanation the eclipse for it. is
1: not a good explanation. However, the really interesting thing about the comment is that it indicates that the darkness was taken as an assumed fact and an explanation, even a bad explanation, was being given for the fact of the darkness. Right. So that is an interesting uh, a- an interesting reference. It's not as direct and as sort of fleshed out as we could wish it to be. One of the things we're up against here is that we have only this passing reference uh, to it, and we don't have the detailed information that we would look for in a full source. You need to remember that the vast majority even of the books we know existed in the first and second centuries are gone. Right. They've been lost. We have you know catalogs and citations and references, and we can compile a list of those. and about 85% of the second century material that we know existed then, We've lost, we have about 15%, about 3 out of 20, right. which means that there's a lot of material we really wish we could get our hands on. And, you know, it, it's, it's best not to press something like that harder than it will bear. It's interesting. It suggests that it was a matter of discussion, but it's very difficult to make a, uh, a heavy argument based on that alone.
2: Right. Um. Uh, Tim, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, more along the lines of the historical reliability of the uh, New Testament and um, and Luke. Uh, there's a skeptic argument having to do with the uh, census of Quirinius. Sure. And uh, it, they maintain that Luke made a big blunder on that one. Can you uh, uh, explain to our listening audience why Luke was correct in his uh, uh, outline of that um, uh, census?
1: Sure. Let's let let's um. Be, you know, the, the reference is Luke chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, and frankly it is a bit of a puzzle. Luke is being very terse here. It's possible that he's translating somebody else's report, and there are some live options as to how his Greek should be interpreted or understood. Before we get into that though, let's put this all in perspective. Look at it from a secular historian's point of view and suppose the worst. Suppose that Luke had actually blundered misdating a census that took place before he was born, not something that's in the time period that he's mostly writing about. But but suppose he did blunder, so some 30 years before Jesus' public ministry, Luke tried to nail down a date, and let's just suppose for the sake of argument that he got it wrong by about a dozen years. That would be fatal to certain theories of biblical inspiration. But from a historian's point of view, it would not be a big deal. We deal with historical errors regarding dates all the time. Josephus, for example, gives us two different dates for the beginning of the building of the temple under Herod the Great. Nobody throws out Josephus as a historian. Because Again, like we, we
0: mentioned earlier, they didn't have the Internet or news sources like we have today to verify right. things necessarily. Right,
1: and this is Josephus contradicting Josephus. He's contradicting himself. Well, right. you know, we, we just look at it and say, you know, maybe he got better, better information afterwards. That having been said, It is not probable, on ordinary historical grounds now, not probable, that Luke made an error here for two reasons. First of all, in Acts 5.37, the taxation under Quirinius is mentioned. Luke is reporting what somebody is saying, and the person says that, you know, at the time of the taxation, such and such happened. And it's clearly the one that's happening around the year 6 or 7 A.D. It's the subsequent one, not the events having to do with the time of Jesus' birth. So Luke is very well aware of the timing of the census of Quirinius, and that really makes it hard to believe that he just goofed about it. Second, in the very book that we're looking at, in Luke chapter 23, do you remember the scene where the Jews drag Jesus before Pilate, and as soon as Pilate hears that Jesus is a Galilean, he says, Oh! He's a Galilean. Well, you got to send him to Herod Antipas, because he's here right now, and he's got jurisdiction over Galilee. Right. That's an pass interesting passage. Pass the buck. Yeah, it's an interesting <laughs> passage in a lot of ways. And he is trying to pass the buck in a way, but he's also trying to heal over some annoyance that's grown up between him and Antipas. But the important thing about this is it shows that Luke is very well aware that there is now a sharp political distinction between Judea and Galilee. Now, that's a distinction that was set in stone when Archelaus got deposed and Quirinius came around and started taking people's money. So Luke's fully aware of the fact that the governor of Syria would not normally have had executive power in Judea until after that point because he's talking about events that presuppose that division. So it's really, really difficult to swallow the idea that Luke has just made a mistake. Now, turning to the text, There are several reasonable options that don't involve Luke's making an error at all. I'll just sketch two of them for you. Some some scholars think that Quirinius, the Roman guy, had an official governing role in Syria for more than just the span during which he was technically the governor. And there is uh, evidence that suggests this. It doesn't prove it, but there's a gap in our knowledge of where Quirinius was at certain times, and this would fit right into it, and there are some other things that uh, suggests he he was given a triumph for having put down uh, a military unrest in Cilicia, and it appears that that was, in fact, within the region of Syria at that time. Uh, A lot of times, if the emperor didn't like What was going on somewhere in a senatorial province? The provinces of the Roman Empire were divided up between imperial and senatorial, and every few years they'd swap. The emperor would say, well, you know, here, I'll give you Achaea if you'll give me Syria, and they'd they'd trade them back and forth. And and who got to rule there was a function of whether the senate or the emperor had control of it. Well. Mm -hmm when the Senate had control of it, sometimes the Emperor wouldn't be too happy about the way things were going, and he'd sent his own representative, answerable directly to him, mm-hmm. to keep an eye on things. We know that Augustus did this with respect to uh, Saturninus, the technical governor, and Volumnius. Uh, this is, we get out of Josephus again in the Jewish War, Book 1. He looks like uh, he was a special agent of Augustus. Both of them are called governor. So the word Actually, hegemon gets used for both. The the, the word does have a strict meaning, but everybody understood that you didn't mess with the emperor's personal representative. So he was also a governor. Um, So that's one possible explanation. He could have been a competent, trustworthy military man sent by Augustus to keep an eye on things there for a while. And we also know, and this, this helps with any interpretation, that at the end of the reign of Herod the Great, Herod, ticked off the Emperor Augustus. Augustus wrote him a note and said, I've treated you up till now as a friend, but now I'm going to treat you as a subject. Hmm. Now, one of the things that this could very well mean is that instead of letting Herod in his own way collect whatever revenues he was sending forward to Rome, the Emperor was going to enforce a taxation on his own. They patch things up after a short while. Herod very cannily sends someone to represent his case to the emperor, and and then things get healed over. But right there in that middle zone, it's not implausible that something was set in motion. Now, the Greek word that is translated to be taxed in our English Bibles actually means enrolled or registered. Strictly speaking, it means the registration rather than the actual taxing. But through metonymy, the word can mean the full registration plus taxing. Um, so one idea is that after the registration in the narrow sense, whether was, this was done under Quirinius or by somebody else at that time, um, after that took place, there was this hiatus, because Herod got back into Augustus's good graces, and then Herod died, and Archelaus took over. And it was only when Archelaus had botched the situation in Judea and had to be deposed Quirinius is sent in, and at that point, Quirinius takes power in Syria, takes control over Judea, and the registration could be used as the basis for an actual taxation. In other words, uh, the word, this, this taxation was made, could mean it was, that this registration was made use of, or it was set in motion. So the translation that we would get there for that particular passage would run something like this, and this enrollment or registration was first made use of, or first put to use, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And that doesn't even require Quirinius to have two periods as governor of Syria. So the funny thing is the confusion may actually have arisen from the care Luke was taking to make sure he wasn't misunderstood. He distinguishes the registration enjoined by Augustus from the actual taxation carried out by Quirinius and a period of a little more than a decade does separate the two.
2: Hmm. All right, so that covers both bases then.
1: Yeah, So, and, and there are there are other possibilities as well, but mm. that strikes me as one of the more plausible ones. And incidentally, it's a solution that's been around since Calvin. Mm. So it has a long pedigree, and a lot of scholars have, have looked at this and said, yeah, you know what, the Greek will support that reading.
2: When you look at uh, the complete body of works of, of, let's say, Josephus and Tacitus and so forth, what do you think is the strongest argument uh, between what they have to say uh, extant from the Bibles and what the uh, Gospels have to say, the strongest correlation, the strongest argument that you can give us as a, uh, uh, a Christian educator?
1: Well, with Josephus, I think you've got the very best, because Tacitus is a Roman historian writing at a distance, He takes very little notice. He does take notice in Annals 1544, for example. Uh, He tells us that the Christians were seized upon by Nero as a scapegoat for the fire of Rome because people thought Nero might have ordered it to be set himself. And uh, so there are points of contact, but for the most part, to the Roman eye, uh, Christianity is lost on the dark background of Judaism. Judaism is strange, and they don't like it much or understand it much. Jesus was just another rabbi, and they were all a little crazy. So what's the big deal? (laughs) Um, With Josephus, though, you've got a Jew chronicling the history of his country up to the destruction of Jerusalem and uh, the destruction of all of the hopes of Israel for nationhood in its own right. And so what I think is fascinating is that there are passages in Josephus, you know, the famous passage in uh, Book 18 of the Antiquities, where he actually mentions Jesus very explicitly. The passage has been disputed, but virtually every Josephus scholar alive thinks that it's basically authentic. Some Christian hand has come along and put a few interpolations in, but we have an Arabic text of it that doesn't have those interpolations, and that looks pretty much like what was originally written. But I don't think that's the best point of contact. I think the... The argument that we're looking at here in terms of incidental confirmations, and and, and I have more, by the way, if you want more, um, is an argument that is cumulative. You pick up one after another after another. Many of these are points of contact with Josephus or Philo, sometimes, though, even from a coin. And it's the cumulative force. Any one of them, you can say, "Mm, that's kind of interesting. I don't know. But once you put them all together you realize these authors were well-informed, and they were habitually truthful. Because time after time after time, we can catch them getting it right. At places they couldn't possibly have predicted, we'd be looking. Hmm. They, They couldn't know what later people, like Josephus writing in the 90s, would come along and mention that would dovetail with what they say, little details of the description of Jerusalem, for example, before its destruction. Josephus grew up there, so he knows it intimately. He gives us an account of some bits of it. Those fit together with bits and pieces that we find in the New Testament in beautiful ways. Archaeology, numismatics, um, that kind of cumulative argument ranging over myriad details is, to me, the most convincing argument for the substantial truthfulness and historicity of the historical books of the New Testament. That we, we get information here that enriches our understanding even of familiar passages of Scripture, and in the light of that information, the suggestion that the Gospels are myths written after the real eyewitnesses were dead is absurd.
0: Hmm. Well, we have about eight minutes left. Do you want to give us a couple more of these incidental confirmations that you have? Sure,
1: I have lots more. Let's talk. uh, Here's a great one. Remember the passage in Luke 20 where the teachers, the law, and the scribes have sent spies to try to trap Jesus with a trick question? Uh In verse 22, they ask him, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Right. Now, there's no good answer to this question.
0: Right. If he
1: says yes... That's like,
0: do you still beat your wife?
1: That's right. I mean, <laughs> if he says yes, he's endorsing the extortion of money from God's people to, you know, feed the godless empire. And if he says no, they turn him over to the Romans immediately. Right. So this is, this is a no-way-out question. Jesus <laughs> is not fooled. He knows exactly what they're up to. So, verse 24, he says, show me a denarius. A denarius is a Roman coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? You get the impression they start looking at their sandals right about now. They say, Caesars. He says to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, I always thought this was a cool story, but I never really understood why it was such a killer response. Part of the answer is that The possession of images of any kind was considered by devout Jews at the time to be a violation of the second commandment from Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. Um, That part's easy to understand. But for many years, I had no idea why Jesus also mentioned the inscription. Well... Welcome to the 21st century. We have Google. You can enter Denarius, Tiberius, inscription. You know, you can look this up. And what you will discover is that around the edge of the coin, clockwise from, or no, I guess counterclockwise, uh, from the center of the left side, the inscription reads, Augustus Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Hmm. So the inscription promotes the worship of the Roman emperor as a god. Hmm. Do you see how that fills out the context of what Jesus is saying? He's pointing out, and his audience can't help understanding this, that coveting this Roman money is not only a violation of the second commandment, the one against graven images. Right. It's a violation of the first. You shall have no other gods
2: before me. And right. you know, taking that uh, argument one step further, uh, looking at Jesus himself as the divine son Absolutely. God, and it's just like wow, that yeah. is really powerful,
1: right? So you can see in the light of that little bit of information about a Roman coin, just how thoroughly Jesus is embarrassing his critics. <laughs> Do you, you notice what happens after that? They're just they fall silent and they're just astonished. Right. <laughs> yeah, we had this killer question. We couldn't lose. We lost. <laughs> what happened? Um, here's another one dealing with Jewish matters in Luke three two. We read, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, blah, 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 blah. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, and then it goes on and talks about John the Baptist. Uh, now, if you read your Old Testament, you discover that there's only one high priest. Looks like Luke goofed. And it gets worse, in John eighteen thirteen, we read... But they led Jesus to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. But again, if you read your Old Testament, you discover that the high priest is appointed for life. It's not an annual appointment. He doesn't have to run for re-election. So one 19th century minister turned skeptic, and we still have some of those today, Uh, seized on this passage to accuse the authors of being frauds. And his name is Robert Taylor, and he wrote that any person acquainted with the history and polity of the Jews must have known that there never was but one high priest at a time. No Jew could have been ignorant that the high priest's office was not annual, but for life. Well, then you look at what Josephus has to say, and you discover that Annas had held the office of high priest for a while, and then one of Pilate's predecessors deposed him and then successively appointed, and this is one of the things the Romans did, they would appoint and depose high priests, one after the other, including one of Annas' sons, Joseph Caiaphas. His son-in-law was the fourth of these. And then throughout the period of the Gospels and for more than a decade afterward, Annas sort of kept his hand in. He was the power behind the high priesthood and controlled the temple through his sons. And he managed to have five of his sons appointed high priest. So Hmm. all of this now fits together. There, he really is the sort of the power behind the priesthood. Josephus even refers at one point to the high priests in the Jewish war. This is uh, Book 2, Chapter 12, if somebody wants to look it up. And this actually sheds light. I'll be quick here. I know we're running into the deadline. Uh, on Acts 23, Paul's dragged before the Sanhedrin, and uh, we've got Ananias. He, he slaps, he, he says, hit him in the mouth. And Paul says... Uh, You know, God will smite you, and the bystanders say, whoa, you're insulting God's high priest. And and Paul says, I didn't know that he was the high priest. Guess what? He's not. He had been the high priest, but he'd been deposed by one of those Romans. And along came uh, another guy, and then the other guy got murdered, and Ananias stepped into the role on his own accord without authority. So here's Paul. He's brilliant, he's observant, he's sarcastic, and he turns their rebuke around on me. I didn't know that he was the high priest because he isn't.
0: Okay. Is that kind of like when we have, like, uh, we still call George Bush, he's still called President Bush, even though he's out of office?
1: Yeah, but it's a little bit worse than this because, strictly speaking, the Jews shouldn't be submitting to anybody else's, you know, saying, who's your high priest, Right. But they've made this sort of bargain with the devil. They've agreed to let the Romans come in, clean the bandits out of the hills, secure their land, but the price they pay for that is that the Romans have veto power over every office there. Yeah, you yeah, know the high priest has some autonomy, but the Romans have trumping autonomy. They can right. appoint or depose him.
2: Yep. Professor, you have two minutes to make your closing argument. Hit us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> My closing argument would be that there's so many closing arguments, I can't hit you with it all. Uh <laughs> You know, in the early 20th century, skeptics loved to point to uh, John chapter five verse two, and say, "Well, John talks about the the four colonnades or, or roofed walkways surrounding the pool of Bethesda. These are really a metaphor for the four books of the law, uh, or the five, sorry the five books of the law, the five five walkways. You know the, 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 this is the Pentateuch, right? It's just a metaphor. It's not a real description because John couldn't have known Jerusalem. Guess what? We dug it up. There are four colonnades around the sides, and then it's spanned right across the middle by a fifth. Yeah, okay. Um, so
2: archaeology confirmed.
1: Archaeology confirms The moral of this is that the entire historical framework in which the gospel picture is set is real. The facts of the civil history, small ones, great ones, they're true. The personages are correctly depicted. To suppose that there's this minute historical accuracy in all of the details of the history and that the story itself is mythic is absurd. Hmm. That's the take-home message.
0: That's a good way to end it. Dr. McGrew, thank you for being on again this week, and it sounds like we'll have to have you back on again
2: to uh, finish these.
1: There's more to be said.
2: And just to remind our listening audience, you can find more of this interesting dialogue on the website uh, that's hosted by uh, uh, Dr. McGrew, and it's historicalapologetics.org. That's all one word, historicalapologetics.org.
1: Right. Thank you very much. Okay.
2: So we hope you'll join us
0: again next week at 4 p.m. on WIBG, 1020 a.m. And remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. That was true!